and welcome into the latest edition of the Sharpshooters. I'm David Schuster, and he, of course, is Mark Shanowski. And we'll eventually get to our segment where we go back in time and talk about one of our many experiences over the years covering the Bulls. And certainly, Mark and I have many of those. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about Chicago iconic places for those who might be out of the area, who might want to come here to Chicago. We're going to throw that in at the end here. But obviously, basketball is our forte. It's uh, mine and Mark's middle name. And the Bulls are front and center, as always, on our podcast. And uh, Mark, the Bulls are like an old-fashioned teeter-totter. They go up, they go down. They go up, they go down. When last we spoke, uh, they were nearing the 500 mark. And they started the week with a nice win on the road at Charlotte. And then they came home, and I hate to say it, they were exposed in back-to-back losses, first to the world champion Lakers, and LeBron had his way in that game, and so did Anthony Davis. And then the Celtics came to town, and they did a pasting of the Bulls as well. So there's still a long ways to go for this uh, basketball team. Yeah, I think the fans got kind of a painful lesson that uh, the, the rebuilding process is not over. It's not even at the middle stages. They're still working to develop the young guys on the roster we have a new front office and a new coaching staff, but the roster stayed basically the same. It is one of the youngest teams in the NBA, especially with their starting lineup, and you're going to have some high points. You're going to have some disappointments throughout the course of the season. We're going to hear from Billy Donovan a little bit later in the podcast, but one of his most telling quotes after they got spanked by Boston Monday night was the fact that, unfortunately, before you win, there's generally going to be a lot of suffering. And Bulls fans don't want to hear that, but you know, we saw with how they were exposed in the games against the Lakers and the Celtics, granted, two of the best teams in the league, that they're not ready to run with the best teams right now. They can compete against the, the bottom feeders and against the, some of the middle range teams, but they are not ready to do much more than maybe contend for one of those 9-10 play-in possibilities in terms of playoffs. I think right now the front office has already decided, heck, they probably decided when they did their film study during the long offseason when they were dormant, that... Some of these guys aren't going to be here long term. And I think that what we're seeing in these games is that a lot of these young guys are kind of solidifying what our tourist Carnishivus and Mark Eversley already thought. I'm sure they have two, three, maybe five guys that they're thinking long term. They're not going to be here. And I think we'll see by next off season some of those guys being moved. I don't expect a mass ex- exodus at the March 25th trade deadline. They might make one or two deals. But, you know, I think they've already made some conclusions. We've reached the quarter pole of this 72-game season, and I think they they have a pretty good idea of who's going to be part of the core as they move forward and who's going to be moved out in trades. And our good buddy Casey Johnson, of course, of NBC Sports Chicago, he did a column earlier today where he gave out his grades at the quarter pole, if you will. And and, uh, Casey and I, and I know you as well probably, we've always been pretty kindred, and I was right on – I was right along with him on all the grades that he gave for all the players. He gave, as I thought he would, um, pass more than passing grades. I should say A or A minus grades to Zach Levine and Thaddeus Young, and I couldn't uh, disagree with those. Um, he was even a little bit more generous on some of the grades than I might have given on some of the other players down the roster, but those are the two players that certainly stand out so far, 25% of the season down. Yeah, I think that Thaddeus Young has been so much better in this offensive system that Billy Donovan runs than what Jim Boylan had a year ago. Last year, Jim was just paralyzed by the analytics. He just wanted three-point shots and layups and nothing in between. And I think 
he took he made guys into robots. They were told, don't shoot mid-range jumpers. And I think it really hurt a lot of guys' effectiveness. Thad Young throughout his career has been a guy you throw it to him in the post. He can score down low. He's also a pretty good passer out of the post. He had nine assists in that Celtics game. And I think he's been used very efficiently. Zach Levine has improved in all areas again. He's upped his scoring <laughs> average just a little bit. He's got career highs and rebounds and assists. He's making more effort on the defensive end. It was kind of alarming the last two games. He had a combined 13 turnovers in the games against the Lakers and the Celtics, and that's that's not good at all. He's got to clean that up. But, yeah, those have been the most effective players to this point, and, and I think that, you know, it really has opened up a whole discussion on, on where Zach Levine fits. We talked about it in our last podcast that, you know, he's got – uh, this year and next year on his contract, and they're going to have to make a tough decision on whether they want to max him out. And maybe that what the front office is seeing now throughout the course of the first one-fourth of this season, that maybe Zach is a guy that you can use as part of the core going forward. Well, you mentioned Zach Levine, and we're certainly going to talk about him and some already some trade rumors that are starting to pop up. I don't know how much credence I put in those, um, as I've alluded to many times Going into the season, I think Kardashevis is going to just take a bird's eye view up close and personal of this entire roster. And he might have come to some conclusions already. And as time goes on, those conclusions might even become more solidified. I don't think he's going to do anything either, Mark, other than at the trading deadline. See what some of those veteran players can get you around the league. Because obviously a Thaddeus Young or a Thomas Sadoransky, if he stays healthy, might be coveted by some teams around the league. Um, but I think in the offseason more specifically, I think that's when Karnischewicz makes his move. And he might have already tipped his hand by not giving a new contract to Lowry Markkinen. And as time goes on, you see some good in Lowry Markkinen, but you also see some deficits in his game. I mean, for a guy who's 7-1, should he only be averaging the small amount of rebounds that he does each game? It doesn't make much sense to me. Well, we saw in the game against the Lakers where he became a spot-up shooter. All of his shots were from three-point range. He was 0 for 5 from distance. And as he started clanking those long jumpers, you could almost see his energy level and his confidence start to droop. And you hate to see that. And it's one of the things that Donovan has emphasized is he doesn't want to see his team give in to adversity and start to hang their heads. And I thought in both games, especially in the game against the Lakers, they kind of gave up early. They packed it in early in that game, realizing that, hey, we're not making shots. It's not our night. LeBron and AD are off to great starts, and, and we're, we're done for in this game. In the Boston game, at least they came back a little bit in the second half and made it you know, somewhat competitive. But you know, in terms of Lowry specifically, he remains just a huge enigma. There are some nights where he looks aggressive. He's taking the ball to the basket. He's getting to the free throw line. He's grabbing the ball off the defensive boards and, and initiating plays in transition. And other days, he just kind of camps out at the three-point line and waits for the ball to come to him. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the front office has already made some decisions on these guys. If they feel long-term that Patrick Williams is better suited as a power forward, then I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they decided this deadline even to move Lowry Market along in a trade. I just want to say this on Patrick Williams. I really didn't think about uh, talking about him too much today. I, I want to see him be more aggressive, Mark. I mean, yeah. like I think I might have stated this in a previous podcast. I think he's continuing what he um, – I mean, he's got talent. There's no offense or buts about it, and we've seen that. But his freshman year at Florida State, he deferred to the older players because that's just the way the system was down there, even though he was, if not the best player on that roster, one of the best players for sure. And I think he's continuing that um, mentality of deferring to the other guys 
in his rookie season in the NBA when I think he should be more aggressive because he could be one of the best players on this roster fairly quickly himself. So that's the one thing if I would say, son, if I'm Billy Donovan, (laughs) you need to be more aggressive. You are one of the best players on this roster. You have the talent. You just need to take more advantage of that talent. Well, Billy Donovan was asked after the game against the Celtics if he's considering lineup changes, specifically maybe moving Kobe White to the bench where he can be a you know a high volume kind of score, put Tomas Sadaransky in the starting lineup where he can play and maybe stabilize the lineup with some of the young guys in there. But I think a more likely uh, change would be moving Patrick Williams to the bench. You know, then you get a chance to play with that young and Sato and Garrett Temple and maybe be featured more in an offensive role. I think part of his reluctance to shoot is the fact that he's playing with ball-dominant type players and Kobe White and Zach Levine. You know, you're going to see Lowry Markkinen get a lot of shots normally in the flow of the offense. And I think that Williams is a 19-year-old rookie who didn't start at all in college, is really deferring to those guys. And, and when he catches the ball, I think his first instinct, much like what we saw with Wendell Carter Jr. in his first couple of years, is to move it along. It's not my job to shoot. I'm supposed to do other things. And, you know, he's got a slow release on that three-point shot. It's almost more of a set shot than it is a jump shot. And I think right now that all comes to the fact that he's thinking too much. When it becomes more instinctive, I think things will smooth out because we've seen at certain occasions in the first 17 games where he'll catch the ball off the dribble, he'll make a quick move, make that mid-range shot, and it looks very instinctive and very natural. But when he catches the ball in the perimeter, he looks reluctant to shoot in, in catch-and-shoot uh, three-point situations. You know, I'm going to be patient with the guy. He's he's 19. Uh, he has not had a ton of basketball experience. And I think down the road, he's going to be a very good player for the Bulls. But it's part of the growth process. And I think maybe a move to the bench, let Otto Porter play with that starting group, let him play with the vets, might, be, might help both of those units. And it might help the Bulls pedal um, Otto Porter Jr. because you're showcasing him more as a starter. Right. And it's, it's funny that you say that, or not funny that you say that, Mark, because if you take a look at some of the other top rookies that were drafted right around him, starting with LaMelo Ball, he's coming off the bench. Halliburton out in Sacramento is coming off the bench. Anthony Edwards, who finally had uh, some good games here recently, even though Minnesota stinks, um, he's had some good games coming off the bench as well. So, I think you're right. Maybe that's what you do with this kid until you figure out this roster a little bit going forward. And let's face it, he's going to play in the NBA for a long, long time. There's no need to start him right now. Yeah, and I think you want to make sure that you're building up his confidence. And I think if he's playing with a group that's going to foster his development, that's going to talk to him during breaks of the action, whether it's in a free throw situation or or going to the huddle after a timeout, you you get Thad Young in his ear, you get Garrett Temple giving him some advice. I think that he might feel more comfortable taking on a more aggressive offensive role with that second unit. But the bottom line is, you know, when it comes to NBA games, the real deciding factor is who's on the court when it's winning time in the last five minutes of the game. We've seen Billy Donovan, you know, Wendell Carter Jr. is out now. Hurt, we'll talk more about him in a bit. But, you know, Daniel Gafford is going to be on the bench. He's not going to have a true center on the court. He's going to have both Markinen and Thad Young out there, and he's going to get the guys that he can trust the most. And right now, they don't have a center on the roster that they really trust in that closing lineup. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Wendell Carter Jr. here. And uh, unfortunately, it's injury added to insult You know, when it, when it comes to Wendell Carter because this will now be three years in the NBA and three years in a row that he's going to miss extended time 
the first time it was with a foot injury. The second time it was with a thumb injury. Now it's with a quad, and it must be a really deep quad contusion. Because, oh my gosh! Yeah. You know, you normally it's it. You know, they say four weeks from now he's already missed a week, so it's going to be minimum five weeks. Um, that's a long time for a quad contusion. I mean, can can you say this guy is is uh, either damaged goods or bad luck? I mean, what can you say about it? That's not that's unusual. Well, I'll tell you a story about a quad contusion that involved me. You know, you and I always like to play in pickup amateur situations, and this is uh this is going back to my younger days. I think I was in my late twenties at the time, and we used to play a lot of charity softball games for the TV station I was working at, and I was playing first base, and there was an errant throw towards me, and I cut into the baseline. And it got kneed in the thigh by the oncoming base runner. And it hurt like hell for, you know, that whole night I could barely walk. And after a couple of days, you know, I didn't have the uh, advantage of NBA therapy and, and NBA you know, cold rooms and heat rooms and all the rest of this stuff. So basically, I just put some ice on it and thought it would be better in a couple of days. Well, what happened was the in- internal bleeding from the thigh contusion went into my knee and the whole thing swelled up. And I was on crutches for a couple of weeks. And it took forever to really for that thing to feel normal. Now, he's in a completely different situation, obviously. I'm a superior athlete, much younger, and he's getting the best treatment possible. So I heard, like you mentioned, it's going to be four more weeks. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. It brought back bad memories of what happened to me. But, you know, I was thinking with the treatment they're going to get, you know, the key is, is draining the blood out of that injury and making sure that you, you know, minimize the swelling. Denzel Valentine, you know, Stacy and Adam Amino always joke about the old man game, but, you know, he leads with his knee on that floater. He must have just got him in the worst possible position. And it just continues the the run of just horrible luck that he's had with, you know, the, the broken thumb in his rookie year. Um, he had the ankle injury last year where he missed a month. And now this, where you would think normally it'd be a week or two, he's going to miss over a month. You know, a lot of the fans are kind of, you know, trying to decide whether that was a good pick or not. And now that he's going to miss all these games again, Wendell was a bit defensive in his comments saying, I don't want people to think I'm injury prone, but three years and three long-term injuries that are kind of of the flukish variety, you know, it does make people wonder, is this guy going to be someone you can count on long-term? Well, first of all, you didn't have your own personal massage therapist back in the day when you got needed. In the- <laughs> no, no, I didn't. And that was, it was unbelievable. It was hard just getting in the car to drive. I mean, you know, you know how it is. Our, our stories of uh, uh, am, our amateur athletic careers, you know, you always think that you're better than you are and, and you find creative ways to get hurt. And, and man, I was, I was in a, I was in a deep for a long time. Oh gosh. I mean, my all time one was uh I was playing the baseball. Let's see. I'm in my low twenties or something like that. And I got clobbered. I was catching in that game and I got clobbered at home plate. And I actually busted a couple of ribs because of the uh, collision. And the next day I had to drive out to Colorado. Um, I mean, talk about bad timing. I mean, it was so hard just to even sit in the damn car. Yeah. And it was like, I don't know, a 14-hour drive. I mean, that was like the longest 14 hours of my life. It hurt like hell. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for for drugs. Yeah, I'll tell you what. But a thigh bruises. I remember I finally, you know how we are, you know, all stubborn as men. And and I, I went to a doctor like days later. And that's when my knee was puffed up, you know, three times its normal size. And the, and, the, and the guy's like, what in the hell happened to you? You know, and why did you wait so long to get here? And, you know, they drained the thing and, and that helped. But it was 
it was a long recovery process. So I do have I do have a degree of empathy and compassion for Wendell. But you know, when you think about professional athletes and the the treatment options that they have, it still was kind of alarming to hear he's going to be out as long as he is. Yeah, I have empathy for him also. But then I always remember they're getting paid like seven figures on a consistent basis. So right. my, my empathy dies down fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> let's hear from Billy Donovan from, uh, and then we'll hear from Wendell Carter also. But let's start with Billy Donovan. He gives us an update on Carter's injury. They wanted to wait for the swelling to go down to do the MRI. And I think the MRI has really showed it's a pretty significant, um, you know, bruise. It's going to take some time to heal. Um, so, you know, that just basically took place the other day and we just got the results back, uh, this morning, I should say maybe yesterday, uh, but they couldn't do the MRI until the swelling went down. And once the swelling went down, um, they realized there's a pretty significant, uh, you know, bruise there that he's got, and it's probably going to take a little bit longer to heal. And then obviously get him back on the court. The hard part, I think for him and the, the length of period of time is one is to let him heal. And then the other part of it is once he does heal, we got to get him back running and moving and conditioning and doing those things. And that's going to take some time too. So, you know, he's been able, I think I said to feeling better, there was a little bit more mobility, but he's not going to really be able to do much conditioning or anything during this time until he fully healed. So he's obviously battled some things over this early part of his career in the NBA. And, you know, he's had some significant time loss for different situations. And, you know, I think Wendell's a great guy. He's a good team guy. He's worked hard to get himself ready. It was just kind of a, a freak thing that happened, you know, in practice and, um, you know, just feel bad. He's got to miss the amount of time he's going to miss. And, you know, Mark, it's, it's, uh, I mean, Wendell Carter, you can say what you want about him. He was averaging 13 points, eight or nine rebounds a game, you know, even with them, they're, they're, they're at a size disadvantage. And now that you take him out of the lineup, I, I think the bulls, the bulls might get destroyed on the boards here a lot upcoming. Yeah. I think they list him officially at six ten on the roster, but I think he's more like six, nine, who knows, maybe even a little bit shorter than that. And, you know, he's a guy that will battle people for position. He does play physical for a player his size, and I have no complaints about his willingness to fight with larger players in the post. He's a good defensive rebounder. He's a good weak side shot blocker. And I think that he could be a better offensive player if he decided that that's something that he wanted to do. He's got a nice touch on his mid-range jump shot. He can shoot the jump hook with either hand. I just think that even with the new coaching staff, they really haven't explored exactly what they have as Wendell Carter Jr. as an offensive player. I think what happens is you look around the league, you look at the fact that the next pick in the draft was Colin Sexton, who's kind of exploding this year as a, as a scoring point guard for the Cavaliers. And that's just the nature of professional sports. You look at who you might have drafted instead of who you did select. And Wendell, unfortunately for him, because of the injuries, he's coming up a little bit short on that scale. People are using the bust word. I think it's too early for that. But, you know, they, they could have been better served had they taken Sexton that year and then maybe gone for a bigger player the following year. Yeah, well, unfortunately, every time he has one of these extended injuries, it, it stunts the development of his game because um, you just want to see more and more of him. And each time, even when he comes back, he's not at 100%. And then it's going to take like another month after that for him to get into the quote-unquote basketball shape. So, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're through three full seasons – we still don't know ultimately what Wendell Carter Jr. can be. We've got glimpses and, and we have our theories on it. But in the long run, I don't know what kind of player. I mean, he, he's always been compared to Al Horford, and that's not a bad comparison. But, Mark, for my money, that's not good enough. It isn't. I want something better. Well, Al Horford developed into a multiple-time All-Star with the Atlanta Hawks and then, and then the Boston Celtics, and I don't see any All-Star games 
in Wendell Carter Jr.'s future. I think part of it is the fact that he's just his just his nature is to defer. We talked about it with Patrick Williams. Well, he's a 19-year-old kid who didn't start one game in college. Wendell Carter Jr. was a very highly rated high school player coming into Duke. Of course, he he kind of got screwed with uh, Bagley coming in and stealing the thunder. He was a late, you know, they changed his dra- his his age classification, and he went to Duke and kind of took the shots away from Wendell Carter Jr. But even then, you know, a lot of teams liked him. I know Dallas was considering taking him at number five before they, you know, worked out that trade to get Luca. So, you know, he he was a guy that was very highly thought of coming into the league. Really, at this point, he's missed long stretches of all three of his seasons. I think, and this is just you know, you know, my observation. I don't have any inside knowledge on this. I think he's one of the guys the front office is looking to trade, and I think it it really they're really mad, upset that he got hurt again because now they can't showcase him in the Donovan system and maybe move him at the deadline. You know, the way the way things work on the contract calendar, they have to make a decision next summer. Do they offer him an extension? And I'm sure they won't. So then you have another player that goes into that limbo stage with restricted free agency. You don't know, you don't have any cost certainty there. I think that he's a guy that ultimately is going to get traded by the Bulls. And the trading deadline this year is uh, sometime in March. I don't have the exact date in front of me. So March 25th. Okay, and and he he will probably be back. I don't know three or four weeks before that. And like I said, you don't. I don't think you get in back uh, in tip top basketball shape for about another three or four weeks after you come back from an injury. So. I don't know. It's just bad luck. Anyway, let's hear from Carter himself, because here he is talking about all those freak injuries the first three years of his career. Yeah, it's, it's definitely frustrating. Um, just just knowing that I do everything in my power just to make sure I avoid the, the, the injuries that I know that I, you know, 90 percent have control over. But then those the, the other 10 percent, you know, you know, I, I can't really control them and. You know, those those three injuries was a part of that ten percent. So, you know, I just kind of got to just take it on the chin and just keep going. Just try to come back as strong and be and, and uh, play like as if uh, I didn't miss a beat when I come back. So the the beat goes on for Wendell Carter Jr. It is what it is, as they always say in sports. Yeah, I mean, you can protest that you know, I'm not injury prone and I'm doing everything to make sure I'm in the best of shape possible, but. Some guys get hurt a lot, others don't, and that's part of your resume, whether you like it or not. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that when they, you're trying to identify guys who are going to be part of this team, extending things out two, three, five years, I'm not sure Carter Jr. is one of them. All right, let's hear from a, a few more sound bites from Billy Donovan because he was pretty much front and center at um, all the Bo- uh, Bulls Zoom sessions this week. And obviously, one of the ongoing unfortunate stories, not only in, in sports, um, but in everything, but specifically in sports and specifically talking about the NBA is the COVID pandemic, obviously. And, and some teams have been hit harder than others. And so it was a good question by Joe Colley to Billy Donovan. Is it going to be fair ultimately, Mark, for them to um, base the playoff seedings? Because not everybody's going to have the same amount of games. You know, you're going to go by winning percentage as opposed to, you know, everybody being on the same plateau. Anyway, here's Billy Donovan responding to that question. I know that, you know, these games that are being postponed, I I think the league is trying to find ways to reschedule. But I think if you even look at our schedule right now, you know, coming out of, um, you know, this week, um, you know, going into February, I think we've got like, I don't know, 17 games in 31 days. So I, I don't know where they reschedule some of these games i think they'd like to try to do that to make it as fair as possible to try to get you know as close to 72 as you possibly can but i mean you make a really good point you know 
you're going to have probably a little bit of a imbalanced, you know, um, uh, number of games, schedule, winning percentages, all those things. So it's kind of what everybody signed up for. You know, I think that the league will probably try to make it as fair as possible. You know, obviously there's playing games and those kind of situations, but I, they, I don't know if I've really have gotten any information, you know, on what the plan is in terms of, like you mentioning, some of these teams missing so many games that they can't make them all up, and now you've got an inbound schedule. Okay, where does that leave the league at the end of the year in terms of, you know, how they make it fair for everybody. I'm not really sure, you know, what they do there. Um, I do think that the feeling was when we got our Boston game canceled the first time was, you know, the possibility of trying to find a date to, to make it up. And, uh, you know, I, I think we even, you know, looked into the possibility, could we play Boston again, you know, here um, because Memphis is not playing, but they've obviously got game schedules. So they couldn't do it. So I don't know how the league's going to figure out the scheduling to make up some of these games. And if they can't, yeah, I think what you're talking about is going to be interesting to see how it all plays out in the end. And I thought that was a good question. And, and you know, again, his answer, he doesn't know for sure himself, Mark. But uh, listen, I mean, uh, the, the NBA had a deal with this last year. They put the the, uh, the playoffs and the end of the regular season into the bubble. It worked. They're trying it this year around not being in a bubble, they're doing the best they can. But what can you say? I mean, even today, as we're recording this, there were hockey games that were canceled by the St. Louis Blues because they don't have enough players. It it just, again, it is what it is. No, there are no automatic solutions until the vaccine gets distributed. And and we've talked about this in past shows that maybe at some point uh, the government decides that professional sports is so important to the fabric of our culture that they make the vaccines available to all these professional teams. And so we may see that happen down the road. But until that point, you're going to keep hearing about teams missing games with the new, more restrictive protocols. We're getting more teams getting involved, missing multiple players for contact tracing. And we did get some good news with this week's announcement that only one new player tested positive for COVID-19 this week, down from 16 last week. So that's a good thing. And hopefully the uh, the post-holiday spike is over. But it, it's not going to go away until the vaccine gets distributed uh, league-wide. And I think right now that what they're going to have to do is if, if all teams can't play 72 games, so be it. You go by winning percentage. The fact that they've added adding a ninth and tenth team with a play-in round will kind of, you know, uh, mollify some of the teams complaining that they didn't get a chance to play enough games to show what they could do. Uh, I, I think that... The league is doing the best they can, as you mentioned, with it. And I think that ultimately they'll try to make up a lot of those games when they release the second half schedule. We'll get as close to 72 as we can. And as long as you can play complete playoff seven-game series, I don't think you'll hear too many complaints. All right, Mark, you mentioned earlier on that uh, Billy Donovan had a great response about, uh, you know, before you get to one thing, you got to suffer, blah, blah, blah. Let's hear from him because I think that's in this soundbite upcoming where basically he says – you know, getting to being even respectable and then some, it's a process. These guys are on our team and they're going to have to learn. Uh, but I think when we can get to a place where when they're looking at it like, geez, some of the decisions, the things I'm doing are impacting the group and I've got to be better. And I do think they're trying to be better. It's been a really good group to work with. It's good guys. But I've said this, you know, for, for a while now. They're all going to need to learn how to win, you know, and I wish I could snap my finger or pour something on it to make it, you know, just happen. But it it doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, before you win, there's generally a lot of suffering. You know, and Mark, uh, <laughs> you know, I keep expecting Billy Donovan, you know, to show maybe a little bit more. I mean, he's got a po- he's got a good poker face. He's very even keel. 
I wonder what he is like behind closed doors. Unfortunately, all we're able to do is deal with him on Zoom. So you can't really 100% detect what his personality is because on Zoom, he's very even keel, even after a loss. He doesn't really take off. You know, maybe he might bemoan some turnovers and stuff like that. But uh, he's pretty even keel. I just wonder what he's like behind closed doors. Well, one of the interesting things he mentioned in his introductory press conference is he said that Arturis Karnishev has sold him on the vision of a partnership, that both he and Arturis would work together in terms of mapping out the future, looking two, three years down the road, identifying which players can be with us long term and which players should be moved along. And as you and I know, covering this team for three decades plus, the fan base is very passionate and they get and they, they ride that roller coaster and people got really excited when they got to seven and eight and, and people are thinking, oh, they're going to make the playoffs. And, and this is a team that that's on the rise. Well, I'm sure that privately when Billy was talking with Arturis and Mark Eversley, they were kind of laughing like these people are, are, you know, going over the moon because we beat Charlotte by 15 points or whatever. I mean, it, it's going to take a lot more than that to say that we've arrived. There's so much work to do in terms of, adding to this roster by deciding who fits and who doesn't. And I think that was Donovan's way of trying to tamper down expectations, saying, that, listen, we're not going to finish 500 this year. We might be able to sneak into that ninth or 10th seed, but hold on a minute. We're going to be a lot better next year, the year after that, and the year after that. Let's not, let's not get so excited about the possibility of maybe getting an eight seed and getting drummed out of the playoffs by a heavyweight. Let's stay the course. Let's identify you know, who we need to keep and who we need to move on because we praise Thad Young. But the reality of it is Thad Young's not going to be on this team when they're hoping to do something special. Garrett Temple and Otto Porter Jr. won't be on this team when they're trying to do something special. If the Bulls have the opportunity to trade any of those three guys or Thomas Sadoransky for a late first-round pick at the deadline, do it. Accumulate as many assets as you can because those guys are not going to get you over the top in any meaningful way. 100%. And the key word here is being assets. They are assets for you to trade, to, to get assets in return. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. One more from Billy Donovan. And, and it was a, um, a thing that popped up uh, this past week about what we originally thought there was not going to be an all-star game. They were just going to take the week off. But now apparently the Players Union does want to have an all-star game, which is interesting in itself. Anyway, let's hear from Billy Donovan, and then we'll get your thoughts on that as well. Obviously, the PA um, is going to work with the league on that. I think they're going to take all those things that you just talked about. You know, how do they, if they do do an all-star game, how do they keep it safe? How do they prevent a spread? Uh, there's no fans. Who actually can come in? You know, how do they make sure that everybody's staying safe? people leaving market, coming back into market. I think the other thing, Joe, too, is, you know, if there if there is not an all-star game and there's a week off or an eight-day period off, you know, what's going to be the criteria? Because you could have the same situation. You could have players all around the league leaving their markets and going places and coming back and potentially bringing the virus back in. So, you know, I haven't really had much uh, of a conversation about, you know, what that's going to look like. Obviously, I know for the league and for the players, the All-Star game is obviously a it's it's a great weekend. It's a great moment, you know, for, for the NBA and celebrating the players that make the team. And it's great. But, you know, however they get to that and however they do the safety part of it, I think whether or not there's an All-Star game or not, they're going to still have to deal with if there is a break in the schedule. What is what is the protocol and what's in place in terms of, you know, guys leaving or guys having family come in? And once you kind of leave, you know, 
are, are we testing regularly? Do you have to test regularly? You know, or are we not testing it? You know, those are all things I'm not really quite sure what's going to happen. That caught me off guard, Mark, because I really didn't think uh, there was going to be an NBA All-Star game. It was here last year in Chicago. Um, but I guess everybody's got their jaded reasons for at least trying to have a game. Well, one of the reasons I think there's a good chance of it happening is the guy that's really pushing it from the Players Association standpoint is Chris Paul, who's the former union president, who's very influential with other big stars around the league. And if Chris Paul's able to round up LeBron James and a few other heavyweight guys like that who want to play the game, they're going to get it done. And if they can raise money uh, for the for the universities and COVID relief like they talked about, I think that would be great. You know, selfishly, as a basketball fan who loves all-star games, I'd like to see it. Um, you know, I know Zach Levine is hoping that he'll get a chance to play in his first all-star game. You look, though, at the East with uh, Kevin Durant back and playing like an MVP again. Russell Westbrook is now in the East. Zach is still fighting an up, uphill climb, or James Harden is now in the East, too. So uh, I don't know if Zach would make the team anyway, which would probably be a, a case of more frustration for him. But if they can figure out a way to do it and do it in a way that, that they feel comfortable with it in terms of health and safety protocols, I said go right ahead. You know, I've said Zach Levine should be an all-star the last couple of years, but it's really tough to overcome the stigma of the Bulls as not being a very good team overall. And the same thing could happen over, uh, once again, I should say, I think he's an all-star again this season, Mark. I think he's even upped his game in other areas. I hope that if there is an all-star game, I hope he gets into the game itself because I think he deserves it. We talked about this a little bit earlier also, Mark, before we move on to something else. There have been some trade rumors I don't know if either one of these names ultimately this season or down the road will become Bulls, and they've both been attached to the Bulls for um, various reasons, one of them being Lonzo Ball, um, and if they do that, that tells you a lot. Uh, the other one being Bradley Beal, and if they end up ever getting him, that tells you a lot as well. Well, there's a connection to the Bulls with Bradley Beal because Billy Donovan coached him at the University of Florida, and when Billy was hired, uh, Bradley Beal put out a tweet celebrating the fact that Billy was back in the league. And that, that link is obviously strong between a, a player who developed so well in college and became a high draft pick and now is, is an all-star and the leading scorer in the NBA right now. An amazing stat with Bradley Beal, of course, he had 47 points in the game that they lost on Wednesday night and it made 10 straight times that he scored 40 points or more that the Wizards lost the game. There was that classic shot of him all by himself on the bench. The benches are set up differently now. You're not all packed together. They're separated by some feet. But he kind of had his arms around a couple of stanchions, and it was like, you know, he couldn't look like the more depressed guy in the world. You know, it was it was frustrating just to see that, you know, he's killing himself trying to get the Wizards to win these basketball games, and it's just not working out. Of course, they've been one of the teams that have hit the hardest by COVID and, and the contact tracing where they had to have like six games in a row postponed because of health and safety protocols. They've had a number of guys injured. Their promising young center, Thomas Bryant, suffered a season-ending knee injury. Uh, Rui Hachimura and Denny Abdia are out with injuries. So they're a skeleton crew right now, and they're, they're probably going to finish as one of the worst teams in the Eastern Conference. But in terms of the connection to the Bulls, they would ask for Zach Levine and two number one draft picks. And I would say, no, thank you. You know, it's like, Beal is an upgrade over Zach. Yes, he's the leading scorer in the NBA. He's been to, he's been an All Star. Uh, he's got a, a better resume than what Zach has, but he's not that big of an upgrade that I'm going to include one or two first round draft picks. So I don't think there's any chance of Bradley Beal coming to Chicago. One team to watch in that Bradley Beal sweepstakes, I think, is Miami because they've kind of lusted after him for a long time. 
and they've got some young guys that they could possibly include in a trade that might might create a match with Miami. So I think Pat Riley's always going big game hunting. I think he might be a guy that's very aggressive if the Wizards decide they're going to trade Bradley Beal. And as far as Lonzo Ball, Bleacher Report, I think it was, put out a report that they're looking into the possibility of moving Lonzo Ball along because he's going to be a restricted free agent this year. He'll be asking for big money as a former number two overall pick. And his shooting is kind of cratered this year. He's shooting like 29% from the three-point line. To me, he's just a, maybe a slightly better version of Chris Dunn. So I would say buyer beware on Lonzo Ball. If I'm the Bulls, I would stay away. I probably would too, although he is more closer to what I consider a true point guard, even though he can't hit you know, the water from the boat, you know, shooting from the outside. Um, but if they were to trade for him, that tells you and t- certainly tells me that they're not – in favor of Kobe White being a starting point guard in the NBA. At least that's how I would interpret it. If they make any kind of trade for anybody who would be a ball-handling guard going forward, they that tells me that either they're going to move Kobe White or they're certainly going to move him to the bench. And I've said all along, there's nothing wrong with Kobe White. I don't care that you drafted him where you drafted him. If you can get a guy coming off your bench who could average 20 points a game, like a Jamal Crawford did for many years and, and Lou Williams and, and Vinnie Johnson, the all-time guy doing it. A guy like that is worth his weight in gold, and that's what I still consider Kobe White's forte to be in the NBA. But you know that David Griffin down in New Orleans is probably going to ask for Lowry marketing. And, you know, Lowry's in the same boat as Lonzo in terms of both were unable to get extensions to their rookie deals. They're both going to be restricted free agents this summer. They're both going to be looking in the neighborhood of 18 to $20 million on a start to their long-term deals. I don't know. I'm, it, maybe it's my own personal bias. I'm just never very excited about guys who can't shoot, and Lonzo Ball can't shoot. So I don't I, – I, personally, I wouldn't trade Lowry Markinen for Lonzo Ball. Maybe if they would give you Lonzo and a first-round pick, I guess you could consider it if you've decided in your own internal evaluations that you're not going to keep Lowry going forward anyway. Well, there's an old adage that you never trade a big man for a small guy anyway, unless that small guy is, you know, off the charts great. And and Lonzo Ball is not off the charts great. I think he's a true point guard, but your point is well taken. He can't shoot the ball from the outside, so he's got a deficiency that's pretty bad. All right, anyway, that wraps it up for the Bulls. Although, one other thing, next week, and we're recording this on Thursday, before we recorded uh, another one probably next week, the Bulls have Portland here over the weekend. Then they have the New York Knicks and Tom Thibodeau here and back-to-back games next Monday and Wednesday. And I think it's so perfect. And maybe Thibodeau, you know, planned this out sort of um, because now the restaurants in Chicago are open, at least, you know, seating for 25%, you know, capacity. The one thing that Tom Thibodeau loves as much as basketball is eating. And now he's going to be here in (laughs) Chicago for a few days straight. I guarantee you, if you want to go out in the town next week, Mark, you'll find Tom Thibodeau at probably three different restaurants in three nights. I'm sure Tom already has his reservations in place for a private table after the game to have a nice, expansive dinner. Uh, Yeah, Tibbs loves to eat, and that was one of the things that he liked best about Chicago was the wide array of restaurants he could go to. He loved going to Chicago, cut and sitting on the the patio. Um, You know, he's a guy who, who loves fine dining who loves uh, you know, a nice bottle of wine. So, yeah, he'll enjoy his stay in Chicago, even if the weather might be uh, quite frigid. 
All right, time for our famous go back in time segments. I'll lead this one off this time, uh, Mark. So many stories and, you know, they'll crop up periodically, but I'm going to center on Dennis Rodman. And obviously when the Bulls got Rodman, and that was a good move by Jerry Krause. I mean, he needed the okay of Pippen and Jordan and obviously uh, uh, um, Phil Jackson and Jerry Reinsdorf, but it was a good move because it helped them win three more titles. And Dennis Rodman was already a nut job. And, you know, I say that just throwing out that adjective. He had already had started painting his hair, if you will, in other places. In San Antonio, you probably saw him, you know, with different colored hair. But when he came to the Bulls, he took it to a new extreme. And there were times, you know, that every other game, it would be a different color. And myself and a few other people in the media, and I don't know if you did this with some of the people that you dealt with also, we would take bets on what color his hair would be on a game-by-game process. And I don't know if I ever got it right, but, you know, over the years, I mean, he had his hair color red. He had his hair colored blonde. He had his hair colored blue and green. He one time came with his hair like like um, like a, like on a pool table, like a cue ball, not a cue ball, but the eight ball where it was, you know, most of the hair was uh one color, and then he had the eight in the middle of his head. He had it one time, um, like leopard colors, you know, different things. Another time he had it uh, like the Riddler, the old Riddler on the TV show right. where he had question marks throughout his entire hair. So, I mean, you know, and then another time he had a kaleidoscope, um, different colors. I mean, it was always a trip just watching Dennis Rodman. And then, of course, after you know, you could never talk to Dennis Rodman before the game. He was you know, you couldn't find him. He was, you know, hiding somewhere. And then after the game, of course, if you wanted to talk to Dennis Rodman, it wasn't in the locker room itself. It was in the hallway as he was walking out of the building and you had to, you know, walk backwards. And it was always comical. And you know, this Mark, the the camera guys would be doing the moonwalk, walking backwards, putting the microphone in his face. And we would be falling all over like bowling pins. I mean, Dennis Rodman was just an absolute trip. Not always a good trip, but he was a trip always covering him. Yeah, unfortunately, I was uh, tethered to cameramen many times on that backwards walk of shame because Dennis (laughs) wouldn't talk at his locker. It always had to be an event. We're walking backwards, nine camera lights blasting in his face, and he never said anything. You know, it was just a lot of mumbling, no direct answers about basketball. It It was really a waste of time, but you had to be there just on the off chance that he might say something extremely controversial or obscene and you didn't have it on tape. So right. that, yeah, that, that was one of the, one of the worst experiences of covering the beat. I was going to tell a different story, but I'll save that for next week. I'll go with the Rodman story as well. And as you mentioned, it was very difficult to get him to talk about anything on the record that was basketball related. Well, one day it was in the dead of winter during the, during the basketball season. I forget the exact year. It was, you know, either his first or second year with the bulls. It was announced that the San Antonio Spurs had made a coaching change. Bob Hill was fired, and Greg Popovich was going to come down from the front office to coach the team. Well, we had come to find out, you know, through comments he had made to one of the beat writers that he was uh, Rodman was not a big fan of Popovich. He thought Popovich was too restrictive, and and you know, his, with his military background, he was he was too tough on the players. He didn't really appreciate uh, the players' lot and didn't give him enough freedom. So. He didn't think much of Popovich, and Popovich, of course, was involved in the trade that sent him to the Bulls for Will Purdue. So he was not real high. So anyway, 
You remember at the old Berto Center, they had that curtain that blocked you from going from where they allowed the media to enter the, the training area to where the player's locker room was. This curtain was about, what, 40 feet high? It extended all the way up to the top of the ceiling, and you could pull it. It was on rollers, and they would occasionally roll it back, bring a player out to meet us with the media, and then the player would retreat back behind the curtain. Well, the players used to love to give us a hard time, and occasionally they would roll the curtain back, poke their head out, and go, hey, you want to talk to me? And then they would shut it, and they would go into the locker room, and they will ha, 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 you know, a big laugh on the media. Well, this one time, this was the day that the San Antonio announced the change. Rodman did the whole thing where he poked his head out, hey, guys, and, and, I, and I just yelled out, hey, did you hear about Popovich? And he had already started walking away. He comes back. He goes, what about Popovich? Yeah, I said, Popovich is now the coach of the Spurs. He sat, he stood there and talked for like 15 minutes about how much he didn't like Popovich, how Popovich was going to be a failure as a head coach, and, and that, that San Antonio made the worst possible decision. Well, it just goes to show you, you can be a great Hall of Fame player and not a good evaluator of a potential coach because Greg Popovich is one of the most successful coaches in NBA history, obviously will be a Hall of Famer, and Dennis had that one completely wrong. But it just goes to show you that, you know, certain tricks that we have in the media game, sometimes you got to find a way to guy to open up. And just getting bringing up his, his former adversary in San Antonio was a way to get one of the best non-game day interviews I think I've ever gotten with, with uh, Dennis Rodman. You know, and Mark, it's funny that you mentioned that because along the same lines, talk about, you know, great players that, you know, don't really have a, a semblance of what, you know, to do with a, an organization – Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. You know, if he would have had his druthers, the Bulls might not have won any championships with the people that were surrounding <laughs> him. Because he wanted everybody who he ever played with in the past, specifically North Carolina, North Carolina guys. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted Joe Wolf to be on the Bulls and, and all these other guys that he Walter played with. Walter Davis, who was washed up, he wanted at the end there of the year. There you career. go. You know, yeah. so, I mean, that's where Jerry Krause. you know, and they obviously they butted heads all the time. It goes without saying. But Jerry Krause you know, knew how to, you know, when he said organizations win championships, you know, yeah, he, he was partially wrong, but he was also partially right when he said that, um, because there are a lot of people that are involved in organizations, you know, that have a small piece of, you know, winning, you know, what it takes to win. And so, you know, Michael took umbrage of that. He shouldn't have, and Jerry Krause should have explained himself a little bit better when it came to that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of stories of Michael butting heads with Jerry Krause, and uh, we can share some of those as we go we go through the we coming weeks. So, yeah, I mean, that it was amazing that they were able to hold that together because it was always, as we saw in the last dance, it was kind of, you know, teetering on chaos many times, but somehow they were always able to bring it back. And that was one of the big credits to Phil Jackson for being able to manage the personalities and manage the egos and make sure that it didn't become so combustible that they couldn't continue to focus with what they did best, which is winning basketball games. All right. One last thing, Mark, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've done favorite pizza places, favorite hot dog places. If you had, you know, and I know you're not a native Chicagoan, but you've been here long enough that now you are a native Chicagoan in essence. If somebody came from out of town from the West coast or down South or from across the pond in Europe, and you wanted to show them around Chicago, what would be one of the two places that you would take them to just to get the semblance of Chicago, specifically in the summer? Because you don't take anybody around in the winter. Well, I think the most incredible views are the top of the Hancock. You know, you go out and look over Lake Michigan up on the 95th floor or whatever it is. I mean, it's spectacular to look out for miles and miles and, and get a chance to look at the city. 
And, you know, I'll tell you what, though, being being a huge baseball fan growing up, though, for me, the most special place in Chicago is Wrigley Field. Just to be able to spend an afternoon, a day game at Wrigley Field with just the smells and the neighborhood and the ambiance. You know, you walk into the seating area, you see the beautiful grass and the ivy, enjoy a few beers, uh, the ballpark food. I mean, there's nothing better than an afternoon at Wrigley Field. So, you know, I've been to all the, the touristy spots. They're all great in their own right. But for me, I, I love the outdoors, obviously love sports. And, and I think you can't beat a day at Wrigley Field. You know, it's funny, Mark. You know, I wrote both of those down here. So we're kindred on that one. The only thing about going to the top of, uh, let's say, the Hancock building, you know, there's a nice restaurant and bar up there. It's on the 95th floor. Just bypass that and go right up, you know, upstairs to the observatory right. because a glass of wine for 20 bucks at the 95th floor, it's not <laughs> worth it. It's not worth it. You're right about that. Yeah. Bring your own. <laughs> Bring your own. Always. <laughs> All right. Good talking to you as always. And we'll do this again next week, Mark. The great thing about next week, hopefully no postponements. The Bulls are scheduled to play four games. I've been kind of uh, having withdrawal with only one or two games a week. So hopefully we have a lot more to talk about next week. All right. Talk to you then. Good talking to you. Thanks, David. Take care, everybody. Be well.